It's Tech Fighter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 274 for January 8, 2012. This week, computer security suggestions from the NSA, Android tablets, paying for journalism, and in short circuits, Park is profitable, Verizon's bad day. Netflix rallies. The National Security Agency, NSA, also sometimes known as the No Such Agency because of its secrecy, knows a thing or two about cybersecurity. The agency has some down-to-earth recommendations for how you can avoid having your information, identity, and bank account stolen. The full PDF article, all seven pages of it, is on the NSA website, but I thought it might be worthwhile to condense the information a bit and possibly to dispel some myths about security along the way. You might think that as long as you have a secure password, everything is fine. Actually, that should be secure passwords, plural, because it is risky to use the same password for multiple accounts. Now, for trivial accounts, reading newspapers, for example, a single password will do, but you don't want the password you use for your bank account to look anything like that password. Crooks don't need to guess your password, though, if they can convince you to give it to them through phishing, or if they manage to direct you to a poisoned website that installs a keylogger on your computer and then forwards usernames and passwords to them. Computer security software is important, of course, but you can't entirely depend on it either. Instead of averting disaster by allowing protective software to blunt an attack, It's better to avoid the attack entirely by staying away from bad websites. That means typing URLs carefully and not following unknown links, even when they appear to come from somebody you know, and using a more secure name server than the one your Internet service provider maintains. My recommendation for your name server is OpenDNS. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to OpenDNS, and at the OpenDNS site you'll find very easy-to-follow instructions for using that free service. The NSA recommendations are in five broad categories. Host computers, Windows. Host computers, Mac. Network operations, internet behavior and operational security, and enhanced protections. Although I strongly recommend that you download the entire document from the NSA and review your own operations using it as a checklist, here are the recommendations that I consider to be the most important. Number one, for Windows, Upgrade to Windows 7 and Office 2007 or Office 2010. If you're still using Windows XP, no matter how good you think it is, you're vulnerable. 64-bit versions of Windows have some additional security capabilities, so choosing 64-bit hardware is a wise investment. Likewise for Office, the early versions, 2000, XP, and 2003, all have serious security concerns, even fully patched. And this isn't my recommendation. Keep in mind, this is from the NSA. For Macintosh, upgrade to Office 2008 or Office 2011. Same reasons apply here as for the Office suite for Windows computers. For Windows computers, install a comprehensive security suite. Well, of course. For the past three years, I've used Norton Internet Security because Symantec software engineers seem to have solved the speed issues that Norton applications were known to have, and the overall protections are very good. But keep in mind, no security suite will catch everything. 
for all operating systems. Don't use the administrator account for daily activities. Just as Linux users are taught never to run as root, Windows users should never use the administrator account except for tasks that need to be performed by the administrator. And this account should have a strong password. The NSA also recommends setting most accounts to be standard user accounts and not to allow any regular users to be part of the administrator's group. As good as this suggestion is, I've had trouble implementing it myself. For Windows users, make sure your browser and PDF reader provide sandbox capabilities. What this means is that executables must operate in a safe environment and that any code delivered to your computer by a website or a PDF document will be maintained in a secure partition for inspection. For all operating systems, keep your software up to date. Many operating systems and applications can automatically update themselves so that your computer always has the most current security patches in place. I still like to maintain a little control here, so I set most operating systems and other updates to download and then notify me. I almost always install them immediately, but if I'm in the middle of an important task, I may want to wait until that task is complete. For all operating systems, encrypt any laptop hard drives. Laptops are attractive to thieves, and they're easy to steal. If the hard drive is encrypted, you'll lose only the computer, which presumably you have insured, while the data on the computer remains safe. Windows and Linux machines can use TrueCrypt, while Mac users should enable FileVault, which is included with the operating system. If you have an Apple iPad, protect the data. These devices are also very attractive targets, so if you have an iPad, enable data protection. Have a home network? Well, then don't allow open access. It used to be common to see open Wi-Fi connections in suburban neighborhoods, but now it's much less common. When you're setting up a home wireless network, be sure to enable WPA2 and not the much weaker WEP. Then, create an SSID that doesn't provide any clue about your identity. And make sure your passphrase is strong and not something that anybody can just guess. And don't turn on remote administration. Anybody who makes changes to your network should be sitting right in front of the router. Those are the nine most critical points in the paper, but I haven't covered any of the behavioral or advanced methods. If you travel or if you exchange data between home and office computers, you should read those sections. No security system is foolproof, but if you make your hardware, your applications, and your passwords harder than average to abuse, most crooks will look elsewhere for targets. Really, it's all relative. How much of a risk can you afford? If you store no information that needs to be secure on your computer, then security doesn't really matter. If you store information that needs to be secure, but the computer isn't connected to the Internet, then security is much less of a concern. Maybe it doesn't really matter. If you have installed strong, secure, up-to-date protective software and you're constantly on guard to avoid phishing and fraudulent websites, security isn't as much of a concern as it might otherwise be, but it's still a concern, something to keep in the back of your mind. The crooks are always looking for ways to steal your data, your identity, and your money. Every new iteration of hardware, operating systems, and software take into account these new threats. Windows XP with IE6 and Word 2003 isn't exactly the equivalent of a 1984 Yugo. Actually, a system like that might reasonably be compared to a 1980 AMC Pacer. Chances are that you'll get where you're going, but you're not going to enjoy the ride.
Analog. Rediscover your music. Guess what happened five minutes after I bought an Android tablet? eWeek magazine wrote an article that said it's stupid to buy an Android tablet because Android will lose the tablet race. And they went on to provide ten reasons why I was stupid to buy an Android tablet. Stupid? Well, yes, let me count the ways. And then I'll let you know what I think of the tablet now that I've used it for a few weeks. So here's why I'm stupid, according to eWeek. Number one, security will be a problem. eWeek says that both Apple and Microsoft's Windows 8 tablets will offer better security. Probably true. Apple's security has always been good, and Windows 8 builds on Windows 7. So that's a good call, eWeek. The iPad is king, number two, and will remain so. Well, two terms are unwise, always and never. The iPad has lots of fans, but prices are a factor for some of us. When I was looking for a tablet, I found I could pay an extra 400 bucks and buy an iPad, or I could save $400 and buy an Asus. Point number three, iOS, that's the operating system that runs the iPad, is more usable. Really? Well, maybe. Number four, Windows 8 has the same strategy. Well, yeah, that's probably true, and I think that Windows 8 tablets will be exactly what a lot of people want and need. And whether this indicates a problem for Apple or a problem for Android or a problem for anybody is still open to question. Number five, vendors are lining up for Windows 8. Well, sure they are. So what? HP, Dell, and Asus will make Windows tablets. Guess what? HP, Dell, and Asus make Android tablets. Does the fact that they're going to start making Windows tablets mean they'll stop making Android tablets? Look at the sales, number six, which eWeek apparently didn't. Android activations are running about half a million per day, but eWeek says that vendors are starting to assume their place is behind Apple. And, they continue, Android's sales are tiny compared to Apple's. How many machines does Apple sell every day? Hint, it's not half a million. And true, most of those Android activations are for smartphones. Which brings us to number seven. Smartphone success means nothing. Somebody really believes this? Apparently some editor at eWeek does, and I quote, Just because Android is successful in the smartphone space doesn't mean it'll have a strong showing in the tablet market. Point number eight, consumer confusion. I quote eWeek, Google has made the poor decision to offer several different versions of its Android operating system. Hmm. Uh, yeah, this is called upgrading. So, apparently, Microsoft should have stopped at the first version of Windows instead of offering Windows 2 and then Windows 3 and then Windows 95 and 98 and ME and, well, probably would have been better if they hadn't offered ME. Windows 2000, Windows XP, Vista, another bad choice, Windows 7 and the upcoming Windows 8. Did somebody at eWeek really think this was a good reason for consumers to avoid Android? Reason number nine. Tablets are boring. Well, I must have a pretty uncommonly high threshold for boredom then. And number 10, Google seems apathetic. At that point, I decided eWeek was really stretching for reason number 10. They just wanted 10 to round it out. Time to sit down and be quiet. On the final program of 2011, I said that the year 2012 would be the year of the tablet. And here's why I think so. Number one, use a tablet for 10 minutes and you'll be sold. Tablets will never replace... Oh, there's one of those bad words that you shouldn't use. I just said never, didn't I? Tablets probably won't, for a very long time, replace desktop computers. And they probably won't replace notebook computers. Tablets present a totally new paradigm and make possible actions that previously were not possible. I can't easily create a website, edit a photograph, or create a video on a tablet 
but I can pick up a tablet, tap a power switch, and be reading a newspaper in less than five seconds. Reason number two that 2012 will be the year of the tablet. You're going to start seeing them everywhere. Attend just about any meeting at any company, and you'll probably see at least one tablet. Companies that offer Wi-Fi access to their corporate LAN, and I think that's probably most companies these days, will drive this trend. Here's the typical storyline. One person buys a tablet, and everybody else makes fun of that person. The person with the tablet is able to leverage it to accomplish tasks that the others can't, and so the others purchase tablets. Reason number three, and I don't have ten reasons, just three. This is the third one. Computer manufacturers are on board. It's no longer just the Apple iPad. Now Amazon has its low-cost Fire, and I would expect at least one and maybe two new models from Amazon this year, models that offer more high-end options. Google's efforts to promote Android for phones and tablets have brought Asus, Sony, Acer, Samsung, Toshiba, T-Mobile, Lenovo, HTC, and probably some manufacturers I've missed on board. And this year, Microsoft will ship Windows 8, and Windows will suddenly become an operating system for tablets. So far, we know that Acer, Samsung, Lenovo, and Dell will make Windows 8 tablets. I can't imagine that Asus, Sony, and Toshiba will stay on the sidelines, at least not for long. So maybe you're wondering what I think about this thing so far. Nothing, nothing is ever perfect. I have found things to complain about, but overall I'm finding the tablet computer is useful, and I'm glad I have it. It's an Asus Transformer TF101 with Android 3.2 on an NVIDIA Tegra 2 processor with a gigabyte of RAM and 32 gigabytes of storage. Front and back cameras, 10.1-inch LED screen with 1280x800 resolution, stereo speakers, micro SD card reader, and an HDMI interface. So here's what I found good and bad so far. Well, it's heavier than I thought. 680 grams is nearly a pound and a half. That's heavier than some books. And holding a tablet in landscape mode while in bed isn't comfortable. And yes, I am a wimp. Documentation is omitted. There's a leaflet in the package. A leaflet. I could use the transformer to visit the ASUS website. In fact, I did. And I found an instruction manual in English, but I couldn't download it to the transformer. I had to download it to a desktop computer and email it to my Gmail account. Then I could save it to the tablet. That's silly. And that's not a problem with tablets. That was a problem with the ASUS website. Support doesn't yet exist, at least not for ASUS. The website offers the ability to troubleshoot any problems you encounter, but if you're unable to resolve the problem via the website's functions, there is no option to contact support, none. The camera is a definite negative. In fact, the camera is crap. I didn't plan to use the camera, so the fact that it can produce only low-contrast, out-of-focus images doesn't really bother me a lot. But it might concern somebody who was counting on being able to use the included 5-megapixel camera for at least the occasional snapshot. No image created by this camera will be even remotely usable by anyone with vision better than about 2300. A big plus? Thousands of apps are available for download, some free or ad-supported. Others cost a dollar or two or maybe ten. Needless to say, the quality is a bit uneven. Some of the apps are astoundingly good, others astoundingly bad. Angry Birds, you've probably heard about that one. Angry Birds, well, it's silly, but it's fun. In fact, I could see some use for this in an algebra class because it's all about angles and trajectories. There's even a bit of logic built in. Having dozens of newspapers available for review, along with CNN, CBS, Al Jazeera, and even Fox, is helpful. And with the Kindle application, tablets are able to do everything your Kindle can do, and a lot the Kindle can't. 
On Boxing Day, I had an appointment to have some scheduled maintenance done on my car. When I arrived at the dealership at 5.45 a.m., they weren't open yet. Traffic turned out to be a little bit lighter than expected, and every traffic light turned green as I approached it, so the trip took a little less time than expected. No problem. I pulled out the tablet and started reading newspapers because the dealership has a free open Wi-Fi service. When the dealership opened at 6, I went to the waiting area and continued reading. In the next hour, while they changed the oil and did some other maintenance, I had looked through Slate, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Toronto Star, and a couple of technical publications. So instead of spending an hour sitting comatose in front of the TV screen, fortunately, none of the other morning patrons felt inclined to turn it on. I was able to do the same thing I might have been doing had I been at home on a vacation day. And yes, after many years of getting up at 4 a.m., arising at 5, almost seems like sleeping in. Almost. The Transformer has a slot for a micro XD memory card, and I bought a SanDisk 16GB micro SDHC flash card with an adapter that converts it to a format that will work in a card reader that I own. 16 bucks, shipping included, from Newegg. I use this card to hold music files that the tablet can play with its built-in audio software. A dedicated MP3 player is more useful if you plan to use it at the gym, but having a few thousand of my favorite selections on the tablet is handy when I'm using the tablet for something and would like to listen to music. With the price of hard drives rising because of flooding in Thailand and the price of solid-state memory continuing to drop, one might conclude that solid-state drives will soon match mechanical drives in price. That's unlikely in the near term, but still, the thought of one dollar per gigabyte for solid-state memory is enough to give somebody like me who remembers the days of several hundred dollars for just a few kilobytes of memory a reason to stop and think about how much this memory would have cost just 30 years ago, and how large it would have been. Hint, it would have been a lot larger than a thumbnail. So, should we say goodbye to the notebook and the desktop? I don't think so. Tablets are by far the most usable handheld devices yet, but I sure wouldn't want to try to edit video or audio, or develop a website, or do any serious database work, or edit a manuscript on one. Tablets are handy when it comes to providing quick, easy, portable access to data. They are far less capable for tasks that require a lot of interaction with the device. They also simply don't have the power needed for many of the tasks that I just listed. Not yet, anyway. But I'm being careful not to say that that time won't come. Oh, and then shortly after the new year, a week seemed to shift gears. I quote, Google's Android operating system may command 50% of worldwide smartphone market share, but it's found a tougher go of it in the tablet space created and carved out by Apple and its iPad, which has sold over 32 million units to date. Android has 10% to 20% of the tablet market combined, depending on which analyst firm you choose to believe. Well, maybe my choice wasn't quite as stupid as I was led to believe at the beginning. The article noted reports by various research agencies that suggest Android's numbers will improve as the underlying operating system improves. It's hard to find people who find honeycomb tablets as polished as the hallowed iPad, they said. But there are a number of nice Android slates in the market. And the article showed some of them, including one by Asus, the EE Transformer Prime. That's a step above the tablet I own, but otherwise it looks identical. journalists? Do we need journalists? That second question may be the more important of the two. 
If you know anybody who has lived in a place where the news is entirely controlled by the state, you wouldn't ask that second question, and you'd know the answer to the first. A surprising number of people feel that journalists are, if not actively harmful, at least irrelevant in this Internet age. More people receive their news from the Internet than from radio. More people receive their news from the Internet than from television. More people receive their news from the Internet than from newspapers. Drive down just about any street in any city on any morning, and you'll see only a few homes where newspapers have been delivered. The Internet has decimated, in the true meaning of that word, the income from auto dealers. The Internet has virtually eliminated want ads. Both of those were once mainstays of newspaper income. Newspapers have been forced to reduce the size of what's called the news hole, the non-ad components of the paper. Newspapers have laid off reporters and photographers. Despite this, newspaper reporters still manage to find and report a lot of news, and many newspapers place their stories online for free. Some newspapers have had limited success with what are derisively called paywalls, but most papers, particularly those in small towns, haven't been able to make paywalls work. People expect everything on the Internet to be free. The Wall Street Journal and the New York Times may be able to charge for content, but the number of site visitors will drop dramatically even there. Reporters simply can't work for free, even though some of them probably would if they were independently wealthy. So I've been thinking about a system that would allow journalists to be paid without forcing subscribers to pay $25 or $50 or $100 per year for each subscription. The problem now is that only a few people pay. The costs are not spread among the entire population. But consider the cable television model. You may watch only half a dozen of the 500 channels you have access to, but you pay for all of them. What if newspapers came up with a similar process by which all Internet users could automatically have access to all news providers? The Internet service providers could charge all users $10 a month, and the funds could then be divided among the news organizations based on the amount of traffic they generate. People might be willing to pay extra for premium publications such as the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and nothing within the consortium arrangement would prohibit a news organization from requiring an additional payment for select areas of the publication. This arrangement would simply provide a base that news organizations could use to pay some of their operating costs. Journalists and journalism are valuable. I really hope that we don't have to discover that fact the hard way. short circuits, it appears that park and profitable can occur in the same sentence. In the final unintended program of 2011, I reported the death of the founder of the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC. That's the organization that invented most of what is today's personal computing, even though Xerox allowed the inventions to languish until some other company, Apple or Microsoft, for example, noticed them and made billions. 
In 2002, Xerox spun off the business unit as Park and gave it a mandate to become profitable. Research scientists are not venture capitalists, and it's taken Park several years to work out the process of licensing its own inventions, finding business partners to pay for basic research, and acquiring patents that can be licensed to others. But it's done a better job in the past 10 years than Xerox managed to do in the previous 30. The term for this new concept is open innovation, and Park clients now include not only Xerox, but also a host of other companies, Fujitsu, Microsoft, Motorola, NEC, Oracle, and Samsung, just to name a few. There are also some partnerships with government agencies, and Park is filing about 150 patent applications every year. Park continues to be a relatively small company, just 250 people who are interested, as always, in the concept of inventing the future. Freed from the total control of a dinosaur, it's even managed to become profitable. What's too bad is that Xerox didn't figure this out earlier. But, knowing the way large corporations work, a committee probably had to be formed to study the feasibility of forming a committee to study the question of giving Park some level of autonomy. After five years of exhaustive study, the results would, of course, then need to be turned over to the legal department and the marketing department, each of which would have to establish work groups to study the various long-term and short-term implications of making the change, no matter how small. All right, in honesty, that whole last bit is entirely a figment of my imagination. And then again, it may not be too far off the mark. Verizon was probably really happy when its terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day finally came to an end. And the CEO of Verizon may have to forego buying a new yacht this year. The company, apparently noticing the figurative band of axe-wielding customers approaching the front door, has abandoned the proposed $2 fee that would have applied to some of its customers. This is known as gotcha capitalism. Companies advertise one price, but by the time they finish piling on all of the additional fees, the final price is escalated by a quarter or a third. Gotcha capitalism. There's even a book by that name. In Verizon's case, the company said it would start charging customers $2 if they paid their bills by credit card. The amount of hatred expressed for Verizon on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media was so extreme that the company backed off just one day later. The $2 fee, which was supposed to go into effect in mid-January, was designed, the company said, to improve the efficiency of those transactions. If by efficiency the company was referring to its ability to extract money from customers, well, that statement is true. Otherwise, not so much. ConsumerWorld.org, a site created by Edgar Dworsky, shows that Dworsky understands what Verizon and its marketing department don't. Quoting Dworsky, I think people are sick of being nickel and dimed by big companies. How true. You know, many years ago, when I studied public relations in college, I was told that the public relations vice president should serve as the company's conscience. Either that lesson has been abandoned, or the other managers at Verizon overruled the PR vice president's recommendations. You know, and besides the response from Verizon's public, the Federal Communications Commission also indicated that it had planned to investigate. So that might have had an effect, too.
There's been so much bad news about Netflix over the past several months that it feels good to have something positive to say. Netflix is reporting that its streaming video customers watched more than 2 billion hours of content in October, November, and December. In addition to that, the company's stock is up by more than 10%. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings says the company has about 20 million customers who subscribe to the streaming service, and the customers live in 45 countries. Netflix is on the verge of offering its own original programming, too, and that seems to have caught the attention of HBO. HBO has now announced that it will no longer sell DVDs to Netflix. That's a na-na-na-na-na kind of a response. The first original Netflix program will be Lilyhammer, a program starring Stephen Van Zandt as a New York gangster. Previously, Van Zandt acted in the Sopranos series, so he has a little experience in that area. The first episode of Lilyhammer is scheduled for February 6th. If the Netflix streaming service can be considered a network, it would have more viewers than any cable network, and that includes the big ones such as Fox and CNN. Customer dissatisfaction with a new pricing scheme that dramatically increased prices led nearly one million people to cancel accounts, and Netflix stock lost nearly 80% of its value in 2011. Instead of $300 per share, the stock dropped to about $63. As of this week, it's back to about 80 and on the way up. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.